Welcome to Hubbub, the people's podcast, where we engage our citizens and investors with the activities of the Planning and Code Administration and encourage everyone to contribute to Hagerstown's growth. All right, well, welcome to the May Hubbub podcast already. I can't believe it's May already. I know, getting right into the summer, uh, of course, under different circumstances. Yes, different atmosphere out there. Yeah, we hope that everyone out there listening is, is doing oh well, uh, doing okay under those circumstances. But uh, nonetheless, our podcast today is really, I feel, I think we all feel, it's maybe one of the most important podcasts. I agree. You know, one thing we always wanted to focus on was, you know, something our department that focuses on is safety. And I think this uh, podcast is all about safety, safety and education. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're going into the summertime. And we know that families, they're looking forward to doing summer activities. Now, of course, they're going to be different for as long as we know. Um, and so we're going at a time where swimming and that kind of activity is popular. Yeah, a lot of people are probably going to be staying home, you know, more this summer. And uh, I think that leads us into um, what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, swimming pools. Um, probably going to be more popular than ever. It's one of those things to do from home. So that's why our podcast today is uh, again we feel is very very important so we hope that you listen through the entire podcast if you know someone a family that has small children they're going to be having swimming activities go on have them watch this podcast because it is uh, going to be very very insightful uh, you know as our department what we do is we focus on um, the, the safety aspects mm -hmm. of it and so there's some really alarming statistics that just kind of make it real for example uh, the CDC. That's an organization we've come to know with the pandemic. Yes. Centers of, of Disease Control. Uh, it mentions some alarming statistics. Children ages one to four have the highest drowning rates. And going back to 2014, among children one to four years uh, old who died from an unintentional injury, one third died from drowning. Mm. And among children ages one to four, most drownings occur in home swimming pools. And drowning is responsible for more deaths among the children ages one to four than any other cause except congenital uh, anomalies like uh, birth defects. And among those one to four, fatal drowning remains the second leading cause of unintentional injury-related death behind motor vehicle crashes. Wow, that's, that's astonishing, really. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I was thinking about that car crashes, it's behind that. Now, the odds of be, being in a car crash are, are slim, mm -hmm. but we know that there's risks. They so do happen, yeah. Don't we all wear seat belts? Yes. To help minimize the risk? Exactly. Yeah. So with swimming pools, there is a large risk there. Why not have things in place to help prevent or minimize that risk? Because they happen so quickly. How often, Donnie, we see on the news where someone uh, unfortunately their child has died in a drowning and they're talking and what they'll say sometimes, I just turned around for a minute. Exactly. You know, me with a uh, seven month old, uh, he hasn't started crawling yet, but just you turn your back for a minute and he's halfway across the room rolling. So I can't even imagine once he, you know, learns how to walk, you know, how quickly this can happen. You know, it, it let your child out of eyesight for a minute, less than a minute, it yeah. can happen. Something Absolutely. to be aware of for sure. Absolutely. And I have two boys, of course, and uh, they're grown now, but it's like yesterday when, you know, we were just eyes on them. Right. You know, 
we're, we're just so concerned about our children. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, these statistics are alarming, and we want to be concerned, and that's the focus today is talk about things that will minimize this, this uh, risk. And that goes back to codes, mm -hmm. which our department handles. Right. right. So even though it, they may be cumbersome and they may be uh, uncomfortable and, you know, may not be one of the things you want to do, they're necessary. Uh, and it's not just drownings, too, we might add. There are other things that are part of it, such as electrical shock. Right. Some pools and things have electricity involved. And, of course, that's a bad combination. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about... Uh, just general information, um, code requirements. As always, we say to our listeners, we're going to talk in, about general requirements. We're going to talk about codes specific to Hagerstown. But if you live in another jurisdiction, you certainly always want to check with your local jurisdiction and find out what the code requirements are. So again, we're going to be discussing uh, permit requirements, why they're in place, and then we'll talk even a little bit about how you know, we can maintain uh, the pools that we have. But, you know, as always, an interesting part of our discussions, and usually what's part of it, is the history behind things. Yes. This is always one of my favorite parts, to learn where did, where did swimming pools come from? You know, it's, it's interesting. So. Yeah. yeah. And granted, history may not be the most favorite thing to all listeners. No. But uh, sometimes understanding history, it's kind of like if we understand history of, of our area or where we live, it gives us background. It kind of gives us a big picture, right? Yeah, it gives us a why to, you know, why we do the things that we do now. So I think it's very important. Yeah, yeah. But the history with pools is interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes way back, some 5,000 years ago. Um, there was what was called the Great Bath. There was this early water tank that was way back. It was in a Pakistani city settlement called Mohenjo Daro. That was a very good pronunciation of that. Well, were uh, you practicing? <laughs> Well, not really. I mean, I did, but I didn't. I mean, I listened to it. So Good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, pools, and they were kind of dual uses. You know, you had these large pools. They were could be used for recreation, but at that time and going way back, people did, didn't have, everybody didn't have a, a bathtub or place to wash mm -hmm. in their homes. So they would go to these large communal areas uh, to bathe, so to speak. But really, when we go forward uh, prominently in time, back to uh, the times of Greece, they kind of started these baths. And then when the Romans took it, well, they just took it to a whole nother level. Wow. And it wasn't uncommon for uh, Rome to have these large baths. Uh, we're talking that could hold thousands of people. Wow. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Swimming with all of your friends. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were so popular that uh, they even went throughout Europe, you know. Uh, everybody adopted having these large baths. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they were even known, that is Rome, to build one of the most largest, um, what they called baths. One of them was 900,000 square feet. Wow. Yeah. So I was wondering, you know, to get an idea of how much 900,000 square feet is, um, the Valley Mall here in Hagerstown, all the retail spaces are about, just about 900,000 square feet, just a little under. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. 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 And these were very uh, well built in the, in the uh, Technology was something else because not only were they just pools, but they were they were heated. Mm, okay. So can you imagine a pool? But then there was rooms underneath the pools, where they had large pipes and columns that were hollow, and they would have all these fires underneath. And through convection and transfer of heat, they would go up, go up the columns, and they would actually heat the water in these large baths. So 
uh, just a crazy amount of technology that just went involved in having these large pools and baths. So, and then we move fast forward to about 2000, uh, 1907, um, Philadelphia Racquet Club, they were credited to having one of the first uh, above ground swimming pools in the United States. So we're going back some time. Yeah, that's, that is quite some time. Yeah. So then if we fast forward a little bit more, uh, right around after World War II, um, then what technology came available was, you know, movies and mm -hmm. Hollywood. And what are the status symbols of Hollywood movie stars? Swimming pools in your backyard, right? Yep. Yeah, so it was kind of a rarity still. You know, not everybody had one. They, they weren't well known about. You know, if you had one, you, you were somebody. You might have had a little bit of money. But, of course, over time, swimming pools in, evolved to where we see them today. All shapes, sizes. Yeah. Um, Some are hidden. I've seen one the other day that, uh, I mean, unless you look closely, you didn't even know the swimming pool was in ground pool. It was, it was pretty impressive. So. Yeah, yeah. And because of technology, they've become more affordable. So that's why they're just so popular. You see them everywhere, right? And now uh, people have a, even have their own. They don't have to really go anywhere. They got a little backyard vacation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we arrived where we are today, and there was an organization known as the National Swimming Pool Foundation. And uh, recent estimates uh, that it gives is that there are more than 10 million swimming pools across the USA. And that includes more than 360,000 public pools that are open year around. Wow. That's, that's a lot of swimming pools. You, you ain't lying. So, you know what I mean, I thought just because of what we do, you know, you've got all these swimming pools and, and, and granted it's, it's recreation and it's a time to have fun, but now the risk of accidents kind of enters to the picture a little bit more. And that's what drives codes, um, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, it's when you, when you see the potential or you have accidents, now you put these things in place to try to prevent those accidents. Right. The codes are there for a reason. You know, usually something has happened already, you know, and you know, we try to be proactive as you can with the codes, but unfortunately things happen and we learn from those mistakes. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, when it comes to the history of now building permits related to swimming pools, that goes all the way back to the late 1950s when these swimming pools started getting really, really popular. And these codes were created to keep people safe. And again, as we've talked about in la uh, past episodes, uh, going way back, there was the Boca Code. Mm -hmm. So if you want to uh, find out what we're talking about there, go back and watch our first episode where we talk about the history of codes and how the Boca Code uh, fit into that. But in 1960, the Boca Building Code required building permits for swimming pools. And the same standards from this edition in 1960 are really still in use today. So Although the codes have evolved and changed over the years, basically these same standards uh, still exist. It's just the code's been expanded right. to en encompass you know, today's real-life situations, and, and they still apply. Now, there's also another code that comes into play as well, and it's called the National Standardized Code. And in 2012, the International Code Council, again, watch our previous, our first episode on what that is, but the International Code Council created a standardized code for swimming pools and spas to be used nationwide. And it's really only 
comprehensive residential and public swimming pool and spa code available. And the city of Hagerstown uses this code uh, and it's used it since its creation in 2015. And now, of course, as codes advances, advance and change uh, and are adopted, you know, we continue with that. So we currently use the 2018 edition of the code. Uh, this year, the 2021 code will be the fourth edition available later in the year. So uh, we didn't want to get too much into codes. That's not the purpose of our discussion today, but our first episode talks about, you know, how that's happened. So, you know, a number of things, just to kind of summarize what we've talked about, you've had this evolution of pools in all shapes and sizes and, and numbers, and so now to help create a safe situation, we've had to adopt these codes to do that. So, and of course, there's other requirements as well, exactly. like in the Hagerstown with permits. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, a big question we get is, a, pool, a permit required to put up a pool at my house. You know, this is my house. Do I need a permit for my own pool? Um, the answer is yes. Um, you, uh, pool installations do require a permit. And um, as Sean mentioned, this has been a standard in the city of Hagerstown since 1960. You know, so for the last 60 years, a building permit has been required to um, construct a pool. Um, Something uh, kind of funny, uh, last year uh, we uh, posted about how um, the city of Hagerstown in um, Washington County has this standard and it went relatively viral. You know, we were a brand new social media page just trying to educate um, the citizens and it got a lot of attention. It uh, got shared to a few anti-government um, pages and a lot of local people had no idea about these codes. Um, so there's clearly an op opportunity for uh, education on this topic. So that's why me and Sean are very excited to get this message out there today. And um, the International Code Standards requires that any pool that can hold 24 inches of or more of water uh, must have a permit to be installed. And uh, this is for above ground and in ground pools. Um, there's also uh, barrier requirements, meaning there has to be a four foot high barrier around the pool. Um, at times, if the pool wall is high enough, it can be considered a barrier if the pool wall is at least four feet and rigid. rigid. Um, all gates entering into the pool area must be uh, self-closing and self-latching. And when, when applying for the pool permit, any new fence installation can be included on the permit application. And you know that's for here in Hagerstown, so be sure to check your local jurisdiction to see if a fence permit um, is included when applying for a pool, per, per, pool permit. And uh, in a future episode, we will be talking um, all about fence permits to give you a better understanding um, why we require those. Yeah, and if I could add, yeah. uh, sometimes it's, if you're going for a permit, we encourage our, our, our people who are applicants to do that. If you're going in, make sure you tell us everything you would like to do. Because what we can do is, is we can, instead of piecemealing it, and, and you go in to get a permit and then come back for another permit, sometimes, as, as you just mentioned, we could include everything under one permit, depending on what it is, and that saves you money, it saves you time. and So it's a good idea. Good point. All right, so what about ladders? Um, so when access to a pool requires the use of a ladder, um, they must be protected uh, from accidental entry into the pool. Um, here in Hagerstown, uh, there are two options for ladder access. Uh, the first one is to have a, have a fence off the ladder area to the pool uh, with a minimum four foot high fence um, or provide a lockable ladder that has been manufactured for the intended use of being lockable. Um, 
telling us that the ladder will be removed when the pool is not in use is not a viable option because um, we really don't know, you know, when that ladder may be installed again. And uh, there must be a permanent solution to prevent this unwanted um, and accidental entry into the pool. Uh, another thing we want to touch on are door alarms. So what are door alarms? Uh, it's um, probably what you have guessed. Uh, they are alarms on doors that, when opened, will make an audible sound. Uh, door alarms must be installed when the house itself serves as part of the pool barrier, meaning the house acts as part of the fence. You know, these door alarms are to be installed on all doors of a home that provide direct access to the pool area. And dual, door alarms uh, should last for 30 seconds or more and start within seven seconds after the door is opened. It is to be distinct from any other sounds um, and at least 85 decibels. Uh, you know, just similar to any type of a security alarm, but this will um, just let anybody in the surrounding area know that, hey, somebody opened uh, that door to the pool. Mm -hmm. You might want to go check it out and make sure, you know, kids or someone that you didn't want in there isn't in your pool. So. Yeah. And that seems like a lot. And it is kind of, I mean, it is when you're thinking about what the code requires, that, that takes some time and energy, but mm -hmm. you have to think about what's the trade-off. Exactly. You know, it's all surrounding safety. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, we were talking earlier just a little while ago about how pools have evolved. I mean, now we see all kinds of pools. Used to, you kind of had two different types. You had an in-ground pool and then you have your traditional above-ground right. pool, you know, the rigid walls like you were mentioning. But nowadays, man, you have all kinds of pools made of all kinds of materials. Right. Large and small. Exactly. Some easy to construct, some, you know, take months yeah. to construct, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So sometimes this can be a little bit confusing when it comes to, you know, how we treat these types of pools that are storable, um, they're collapsible, you can take them down in a few minutes, put them back up. But what we have to keep in mind is that basically regardless of what the makeup of how the pool is designed or what it's constructed of, the danger is still there. Mm -hmm. So that's the way we have to look at it is that all of these pools, whether they're very, even very small, even the small inflatable ones can be a drowning hazard. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll get questions from, from our, our residents asking, you know, do these types of pools require a permit? Well, the answer is yes. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with the, um, necessarily the size of the pool. Um, is it portable or not? Is, is it something that is a threat? And so people can get confused about these pools because they're so cheap. And in some cases, you know, honestly, uh, the permit could be more than the pool. It could be the same or more than the pool. Right. And that doesn't make sense. But uh, actually, it, it does in a sense because we're still trying to eliminate the risk. It's not about a dollar. Yes, we understand money is, is, is an issue, but the bigger issue is the safety. And that's why uh, no matter what pool you buy, there is almost always manufacturer's instructions on there. Of course, we all read those, right? Don't exactly, yeah. I yeah. read them. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're well informed in all the, yeah. Yeah, all the fine print. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. So when we read those instructions, you know, it says on there oftentimes to check your local jurisdiction for permit requirements to install these pools. That's because the industry recognizes that there is likely uh, some type of permit requirement. So we recommend you do that, whether it's Hagerstown or any other jurisdiction, you're gonna save a lot of time and money and perhaps aggravation and frustration with you and your children if you just make a quick call to your codes office and see what the, the code requirements are.
So we need a permit for a storable pool. Another question we get too is, well, if I take my pool down, say it's a collapsible or storable pool, I want to take it down, then I want to put it up again later or next season, do I got to get another permit? Right. Well, not necessarily. Uh, for example, if you're going to take it down, it's the same pool, and you're going to put the same pool back up, and you're going to put that same pool back in the same spot. As long as you have those same conditions, you do not have to get another permit. So again, check with your local jurisdiction because their requirements may be different when it comes to pools and permits you've uh, gotten the, the previous year. Uh, Donnie, you mentioned earlier about barrier requirements or for, uh, fence permits for storable pools. Um, there again, you've got to have some type of barrier there. A four foot high fence can be installed if the pool uh, doesn't have its rigid sides. So again, an above ground pool with four foot rigid sides, that's your barrier. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a portable pool, you know, it, the sides are soft, you know, some of those are just vinyl and they're easy collapsible, right. then most likely you're going to have to have some type of barrier, a fence or so forth. So it kind of depends upon the makeup of the pool. And, um, you know, when you come in the, to the codes office and apply that, we're going to ask those questions. And so we're going to then help you to determine what kind of barrier you're going to need based on the pool you're using. So, yeah, a lot of little variables there. We didn't cover them all. Uh, that's right. why it's good to ask questions. So Exactly. No, and I just want to touch on a little bit more on what you said. Um, you know, people often use the term a kiddie pool. You know, does that require a permit? And going back to what we mentioned earlier, if it holds less than 24 inches of water, then no, a permit is not required. Um, you know, confusion comes in the name, you know, of what, what you call it. Um, but it really comes down to how much water you know, it can actually hold. You know, people use different names for different kinds of pools, so um, it's good to go off of how much water um, the pool can actually hold. And, uh, you know, as we mentioned uh, earlier, um, a swimming pool is classified as an object that can hold 24 inches or more of water. And no, you cannot drain a pool to 23 inches of water. Um, and not have to obtain a permit. So if it's capable of holding 24 inches, a permit will be required. Um, and again, if it's designed to hold less than 24 inches, you do not need a permit to install that pool. Um, and are there other types of permits needed for a pool? You know, it all depends. Uh, the outlet to supply power to a pump must be plugged uh, directly into an outlet. You know, the use of an extension cord is not permitted. Uh, the pump wiring must be plugged into a um, ground fault or a GFCI outlet. If one is not close by, um, without the use of an extension cord, then an electrician uh, would have to make a permit application to install an outlet for the pool. You know, these electrical outlets must meet the requirements for outdoor use. Uh, sometimes a plumbing permit could be involved with a pool installation, especially with an in-ground pool. And uh, for all trade required permits or related permits uh you know make sure you check with your local jurisdiction uh just because you're putting up a pool you know you may uh need that fence permit may need that uh plumbing permit may need that electrical permit so it's just good to good to check on that and uh zoning requirements you know you just can't put your pool wherever you want you know all pools no matter the size other than kiddie pools uh must be must meet local setback uh, requirements you know, setbacks are the distances that the pool must be from the property lines. 
Uh, like here in Hagerstown, you cannot have a pool right up against your property line. They must be a certain amount of feet away from the property line depending on the zoning district. Mm -hmm. And uh, some other requirements that we have, um, all pools uh, cannot be located um, under or above power lines. Uh, this should be a pretty obvious one, but uh, um, the top of the pool water must be at least 25 feet from the overhead power lines and there must be at least five feet of earth between the pool and underground power lines. So there's a lot involved there. You may not know if you have underground power lines at your house, you know, you may not know that. So that's what all, you know, getting a pool permit will do. You know, we do the research to see what is needed if you can put it there. So, Yeah, yeah, uh, good, in, good information, you know, and a lot of these things are there, even though we may not understand why Mm -hmm. They are there for a reason because the research has been done. It's just not to create and make life difficult exactly. for people. It's all these things are safety related. Right. So, and really that includes, you know, maintaining the pools as well. Um, sometimes, you know, you use the pool and then it's out of sight, out of mind. You go inside and, and you can forget about it. So we encourage, uh, as most jurisdictions do, have some type of codes related to keeping that pool maintained, meaning keeping it clean and environmentally friendly, not allowing it to, you know, overgrow and, you know, you get wild animals in there and, you know, it a, becomes a breeding ground for mosquitoes and that creates other problems. So, you know, that's encouragement as well as to, you know, regularly maintain your swimming pool um, as well because uh, most people, they don't realize that they'll buy a pool and it's a great idea and then, oh, I gotta maintain it. If you don't mind if I jump in here, yeah. um, even in the off season, when the pool's not being used, you have your cover on it, um, and water's just sitting there. You know, it's a prime place uh, for mosquitoes to breed and hang out, and uh, you and your neighbors will not like that very much. <laughs> so, yeah. even during the off, uh, off times in the you know, fall and springtime, make sure you are maintaining your swimming pool. Yeah, good point as well. So, you know, the bottom line with all of this is that all these things are in place to prevent drownings, to create a safe environment for our children. And there are a number of tips that are even provided, even with all these in, things in place, there are things that we need to do proactively as far as our conduct uh, as parents or, or for caretakers, you know, so that we can prevent some, some tragedies like this. Uh, the uh, pool... Um, there's a, several websites that provide tips to pool safety. And some of those safety tips that can be helpful are, as an example, uh, one mentions one of the best layers of protection is four-sided fencing with a self-closing, self-latching gate around all pools and spas. And this prevents young children from being around water if an adult isn't nearby. And uh, we talked about that earlier. Uh, another key point is designate a water watcher. So this is a person that you've designated that their job is to keep a watch for the children. Uh, you might get distracted, um, go inside or whatever, but you, that person, that, that's their one job. Right. Don't just assume, you know, if it's your spouse or, you know, other family member, friends, uh, just a responsible adult that can be there. Make sure, you know, you're communicating, over communicating uh, to make sure somebody has an eye on the people who are in the pool. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, another tip, and uh, sometimes um, people don't always think about it, is teach your kids to swim. Mm -hmm. uh, with me, I learned to swim at a very young age. Um, so 
that can be helpful. Uh, and while supervision is critical, it's important for children to learn how to swim because uh, obviously if a child knows how to swim, then they've much, they've lessened that risk. Exactly, yes. Yeah, so learn CPR. Um, we've taken CPR yes, sir. since we've been with the city. Mm -hmm. um, one of the statistics is, is that chances are or the odds are that you're going to do CPR on a friend or relative. Yes. Because uh, just the nature of the numbers. That's you're around who, them. Yep, you're around them the most. And uh, it's very nice uh, not necessarily having that physical card in your back pocket, but just having that skill, yeah. you know, having that in your back pocket. Uh, you never know when you're going to need it, but like Sean said, more than likely it's going to be a, a very close uh, friend or relative that you're going to need to use it on. Yeah, and, and even with uh, being prepared from that respect, if you know CPR, um, having taken the class ourselves, one thing that stood out really quickly was is how much energy it takes. Mm -hmm. uh, in a very short period of time, you kind of almost wore out, and you, we would trade off. Mm -hmm. So if you can, it's good to ha have another person there that knows CPR. So one of you is calling 911, the other one's performing CPR, and then you can break one another. Exactly. Until paramedics get there. Yeah. So, good point there. Um, and when it comes to these portable pools or kiddie pools, um, you know, if they're really small or if there's not a lot of problems, sometimes it's just best to empty them after every use. Yes. You know, maybe just simpler to lessen the risk on that. And then if you have ladders in pools, make sure they're put away and, or kept in the pool if it's not properly fenced. And so there's a nice website, poolsafely.gov, if you would like to learn more about pool safety. In fact, on that website, they have an annual pledge where there are thousands of people who sign that pledge committing to being safer around and in pools. And last year, there were many Olympic swimmers who signed this pledge, including Maryland's own Katie Ledecky and Michael Phelps. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll put that uh, link to that website in the description of the podcast, whether you're watching on uh, YouTube or your favorite podcast application, so that you can uh, check out all the safety guidelines and all that information that Sean just went over. Um, I think that about wraps it up for our uh, swimming pool information there. Um, that was a lot of information, a lot of good information, and like we said, we wanted to give you a why as to... We, why we have these codes, and we just want you to be safe out there this summer. We want you to have fun, you know, but we want you to be safe while doing that. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we had it, you know, our viral post from uh, last last summer with the pools. If you want to check out more of those type posts, uh, be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can uh, search for us uh, by searching PCAD Hagerstown. That's P C A D Hagerstown. Uh, you can subscribe to the Hubbub Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast players. Um, and if you're not watching us, but you want to, we are on YouTube. Uh, you know, you can search for us again, PCAD, City of Hagerstown. You can see our smiling faces on our YouTube channel. But if you don't want to see us, that's what the regular audio podcast <laughs> is for. All right, so now everybody's favorite. Uh, favorite part of the episode is our weird news story. So we thought this one would uh, one. be pretty fitting. Um, the title of this article is Swimming in Pot. So $100,000 of marijuana discovered in the backyard pool. So 
This was in uh, Beaver County, Pennsylvania. Uh, an anonymous tip sent police to a house where they uncovered a pool full of pot. You know, it took several uh, trucks to remove all of the plants uh, from the pool. Uh, yeah, it's uh, quite interesting. It looks like a pool that has not been used in probably decades. Um, they were using it to store all of their pot. It was uh, full of weeds, as one would say. So. Yeah, so we're not going to give you a permit for that, are we? No. In fact, we might give a notice to cut the weeds. I would say so. Okay. Yeah. Well. <laughs> All right, yeah, interesting story, interesting story, what people will try to do. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Our, our, our podcast next month will be an interesting one as well. Um, sad to say we, for example, it's not hard to not notice a lot of vacant structures in Hagerstown. Right. So you see them and you wonder, what's going on? Why has that house been vacant so long? What's going on? Is the city doing anything, right? It just seems like nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. But actually, there is a lot uh, behind that. So that's going to be the next episode of our podcast next month. We're going to be talking about vacant structures. We actually have a program that's specifically for vacant structures and uh, actually how they're licensed and how that whole program works. So you can understand uh, what's being done. Uh, continually with those vacant structures. So look forward to that. Now our musical guest to take out our podcast today. Uh, this guy was really nice. I met him at a local coffee shop. He was playing music for their grand opening. Okay. And uh, just went up and started talking to him. Really, really nice uh, guy. Tim Seals. Um, he's been in Hagerstown, a resident for some 24 years. Been playing music since he was a teenager. He plays the ukulele and uh, has an eclectic taste in music. Uh, he's been influenced by all types of music, folk, country blues, old-time jazz, jug band, gospel, bluegrass, and Americana music. Mm. So quite a hodgepodge of say. influences there. So uh, Tim's been playing for the past few years, performing a, a wide variety of music and performing in a wide variety of venues, such as the local farmer's markets, he plays in assisted living facilities, the outlet mall, other Hagerstown events uh, that he's been invited, invited to. And he really just loves reaching out to people and connecting with them through uh, his music. So very personable guy. Of course, you can find him on social media as well, Facebook, YouTube. You can go to Gig Salad and you can message him and he would love to play for uh, your next event. So with that being said, We'll take our show out and we'll listen to some music by Tim Seals.